I love the chaos that is kids. I say that as a warrior in the midst of it. <laughs> Good morning. Um, uh, we're going through the book of Revelation, at least the first couple chapters. So if you have your Bible, you can turn all the way to the back. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, we're in, looking at the church in Pergamum. And so you can start or find your place in verse 12. We'll be working through it. Uh, there, there's seven letters to seven churches, and we're on week three, so the third church. Before we kind of get into um, what Jesus has to say in particular to this church, it just it caused me to think a little bit about um, when I first went to school after, after high school, I went to UBC and was doing an integrated science program there, and you had to take an English class. So the English class that I took was um, you, you had to you had to learn to argue well. I thought this would be fantastic because I loved to argue. I mean, if anybody knew me at that point in time, I was just a, I was a contentious person, not in any kinds of positive way. I just looked for ways in which to like play the devil's advocate because that was me. So I was just like that guy. So sorry if anybody's listening. Um, so I got this class, and I was like, this is a fantastic place in which I can now um, argue my faith. And so I chose as my topic um, to talk about the historicity of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so I wrote a paper on this, and, um, which was super fascinating um, and not well received by my secular prof. Um, but that's besides the point. I had a good time writing it. At about the same time that I'm doing this like outward kind of like argumentation with my prof at school, I had some Mormons come to my door and um, want to discuss, you know, they, do you have time? Ah, me, my argumentative self was like, yeah, come on in, let's do this, right? So we sat down and chatted for a while and I like, my, you, you, your spidey senses are a bit up, right? You're like, I, I think I know that this is wrong or whatever. So right away, you kind of have this, this, um, this wall that's there. So you take everything with a little bit of skepticism and you want to research it. So they gave me the Book of Mormon and I read, read some passages and did some of my own work and then they came back. And at the same time, uh, my, my dad had gotten remarried after my uh, mom had passed away, um, and uh, my new stepmom uh, really enjoyed some uh, prosperity gospel preachers. And so in the background, in the din of the background, was Jesus wants you to be ha happy, wants you to be healthy, wants you to be strong. And so if those things aren't the case, if, if you're not wealthy, if you're not if you're not feeling it right now, well, then you just need to pray more, you need to give more, you need to be a little bit more faithful, and what will happen is Jesus will be more faithful to you, and soon, all of a sudden, you'll be driving the car you want, or you'll have the house that you want, or the disease that you have will go away. And so this is in the background. Now, what was really interesting is that I was always concerned about the things out there, the guys that came to my door and wanted to convert me, or my prof, who is like an agnostic, secular person, who was fighting against my faith. And I paid almost no attention to the voices that were on the TV constantly in my home. And the question I think that is facing us today in our passage here in Pergamum is, which is, which is the greatest threat? 
I mean, if you were to choose which one was the greatest threat, which one would Christ come against, which would it be? I, I, I think what Christ is trying to teach the church in Pergamum is that, yes, there is danger out there, but be wary of the voices that you lend an ear to. So let's we'll kind of unpack this passage together as we go along. We'll start in verse 12 and then kind of just work verse by verse through it. Um, these, these letters kind of all take the same kind of format in that um, Jesus identifies who he is. Then he gives a, con, uh, a confirmation of the church. Says so this is what's good about what's happening, and then he gives a condemnation. This is what's not so good about what's happening. Then he gives a command, and then a commitment to the church. So we're just going to go through it verse by verse and see what Jesus has to say to this church in Pergamum, starting with Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. If you don't have a Bible, they, the verses will be on the screen behind us. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... The words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Now, I'm, if, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll be like, oh, that, that has a little bit of a different tone to it. I mean, when Jesus uh, starts his, his letter to the church in Ephesus, he says, the, uh, for the, man, the, the one who has the seven stars in his right hand, talking about his authority, his, his sovereignty over, a comforting sovereignty over. And then, and then last week we looked at Smyrna in which he says, I was the first and the last and I was dead and I came to life. It's, it's encouraging, but, but here we have something a little bit different, a little bit more terrifying. See, like, Jesus is using the, the image of a sword, which Pergamum would have been very aware of. See, they used to be the capital of Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, and Rome had granted them the, the capacity to bring judgment to the point of execution. They, not every town was capable of doing that. You had to go to particular city centers in order to be condemned to death. Pergamum was one of those places. And so... It was dictated by a sword. So Pergamum understood that a sword was about judicial authority. That this person that was talking to them, that Jesus who was talking to them, had judicial authority over them and could judge them and bring judgment against them. It's a reminder of his authority over them. He's very clear. The beginning of his letter is, I'm the one with a sword that comes out of my mouth. And in their Roman culture, they would have understood, oh, he's saying he's the one who decides what's right and wrong, what's good and what's evil. But, but it goes beyond simple cultural understanding and that this is a biblical theme. This sword actually takes on a new uh, understanding when we would read uh, Hebrews chapter 4, 12 to 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, 
piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. See, in, in Hebrews, this double-edged sword is the word of God. That which he has declared from his mouth through his prophets have been written down in, the, in, in, in his word so that it can discern the thoughts and motivations of the heart. Not just, not just the actions, but that which is behind it, that which motivates its people. It will discern what is good and what is not, what is right and what is not. It will cut it in two. And no one will escape this word. See, as, as we move along in Revelation, the nature of the letter is that it would pass from town to town, and when it came to Pergamum, they would have read Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17. They would have started here and been like the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, and they would have remembered kind of Rome and, and what that was about. They maybe would have remembered a little bit of this background of how the word of God was used, but they would have read on. And they would have come to Revelation chapter 19 when we kind of have this culmination of all of history and where Jesus actually comes back as his ruling, reigning self. And in uh, Revelation 19, verse 13 and 15, it says this. He, being Jesus, is clothed in robes dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. This one, this conquering king who comes is the one who, who divides and who knows the intentions and thoughts of the heart. This one who comes in a conquering manner is the one who divides bone and marrow is the actual word of God and will bring judgment to divide the intentions and thoughts of the heart. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. All of a sudden, the church of Pergamon would be like, ooh, that's a... That's a bit terrifying. That's less comforting and a little bit more awe-inspiring. Jesus, at the beginning of his address to Pergamum, is reminding them of his authority. I decide what is right and what is wrong, what is straight and what is crooked, what is good and what is evil, what is beautiful and what is ugly. And I wonder... Do we approach Jesus' words in that way? That he is the one who decides what is good and right and beautiful. 
Now, there's some versions of the Bible that have um, these red letters in them for where Jesus speaks, and we look at the Gospels, and we see this, I have not come to condemn the world, I've come to save the world, and... Um, you know, there's these encouraging words. Those who come to me, my burden is light. Come and drink of me and you will have life everlasting. And, and, and we want to cling to these words. But these words in Revelation chapter 12, 2 and 3 are also read. These are the words of the one who has judicial authority over the universe. And he is speaking to his church and reminding them of their priorities. Do we have ears to hear what he has to say to the church? So what then does he commend? Well, Revelation 2.13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Pergamum was known as Satan's throne. As if in Smyrna where he's kind of putting people in prison and, 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 and doing his work there, that he would kind of commute over there. But here in Pergamum is where he dwells. Why would, why would Jesus talk about it in such a way? Well, Pergamum was a city kind of 15 miles off the Aegean Sea, and it sat at the base of a thousand-foot kind of hill. And at the top of this hill sat three prominent temples, the temple to Zeus, the temple to Caesar, and the temple to Aesculapius. And you would go up there to worship these gods. You would go up to, wor to worship the emperor and you would go up to sacrifice to these gods so that they would look down upon you. Pergamum literally was in the shadow of the gods. Asclepius was, was a god whose symbol was a snake wrapped around a pole. We actually still use this symbol today in some health organizations. Not that that means anything about the health organizations. It's just it, it's still used in, in that way. But it, 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 he was a healing god. And so it was believed that you could go there with your diseases, with your infirmities, and you could lay down on the temple floor and you would wait until a snake would crawl over you, and as it crawled over you, you would be healed. Or if, if, if you didn't need that, but you needed, you needed safety on your journey, or you needed economic prosperity, you would go to Zeus and you would sacrifice to Zeus, or if you wanted the, the, the social world to know, you'd sacrifice to the emperor. And Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm commending you, Pergamum, for living under the shadow of Satan, the very throne of Satan, and you're holding fast to my name. You are not compromising on me. You are holding the faith to the point of death. When I encourage the, Smyr the church of Smyrna to be faithful unto death, you are doing that, and I commend you. Their persecution was such that at least we know of one who died. And actually that word faithful witness comes to mean martyr as language continues. That this man was a martyr for Christ. 
And they held fast to Christ's name. And yet Jesus has something against them. Revelation 2, 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus' commendation or condemnation is that they are tolerating this teaching from these Balaamites and Nicolaitans. Now, we don't know a ton about the Nicolaitans and about what they stood for, but we, we do know what Balaam was all about. If you would go back to almost the beginning of the Bible, uh, in Numbers chapter 22, you have this story of Balaam that comes along. Some of you would be familiar with Balaam's donkey. But if you, if you, um, if you kind of understand where they are in, in Israel's history, God has saved them from Egypt. They had lived there for 400 years in slavery, had taken on some of their practices of worship and, and, and idolatry. And so when God pulls them out of that and parts the Red Sea and brings them to the Mount Sinai and gives them a new command, he says, you will be holy like I am holy. You won't be like the people of Egypt you won't worship other gods. You will worship me only. And you won't worship those like that are in Canaan where I'm going to bring you. I'm going to bring you to that promised land. You're not going to worship like they are. You're going to worship like, you're going to worship me and me only. You're going to listen to my voice. You're going to heed my commands. And that is how you're going to be blessed. And so Israel comes to the edge of Canaan and there sits King Balak of the Midianites and the Moabites. And he's heard about what Israel's God has done to Egypt and those that stand in their path. And he's thinking, I need to do something to stop this from coming in this way. So he goes and he pays for a prophet, Balaam, who comes and he, he wants to pay him to curse the people of Israel, to bring the, the curse of God on the people. So Balaam goes to God and says, well, I'm going to curse these people. God says, no, you, you can't do that. And so Balaam blesses them. Balak is upset. So he kind of doubles down again. And Balaam comes back and says, I can't curse the people of Israel when God says not to. So he blesses them. And then the third time, same thing, he blesses them. And Balak is like pulling out his hair. What we discover later in Numbers chapter 31 is that before Balaam left, he went to Balak and he said, I cannot curse the people of God because I can only say what God says. But if you, if, if you want to bring curse on them, here's what you do. Send your young women over to their camp and your young men. Be friends with them. Take on some of their culture. Intermarry. Win them over. They'll start to worship your gods and God himself will curse them. Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 3. While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. What wonderful language, hey? 
These, these women, these daughters, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal, another god. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them. See, Jesus is pointing back to a circumstance in where the people of God were called to holiness, worship him only. And they tolerated this infiltration and they started to worship other gods. Their, their, their heart was turned inch by inch, moment by moment, day by day to worshiping other gods. And, and Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, he says, you allow these people in your church. There are people among you who hold to this kind of teaching. Who are veering you towards idolatry, who are veering you towards moral corruption, and you tolerate it. I have that against you. See, we, we actually have an example of this in the New Testament and where Paul is writing to the church in, in Corinthians, and he's, um, he's wanting to correct a few things that he's heard and one of these things in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is this argument about whether or not people should eat meat sacrificed to idols. Now, if you kind of know the, the history of how the church came to be, in Acts chapter 15, um, when, when, when those that came from Jerusalem started to discover that, oh, this isn't just a Jew thing, this isn't just a Jewish thing, but like God is moving among the nations and the Gentiles are coming. We need to decide how is it that God, like what, what do we tell them? How do we tell them to live holy lives? And so in Acts chapter 15, they get together and they decide that really, here, here are the two things we're going to counsel when we go to these churches that, that the Holy Spirit is evidently in. We're going to ask them, don't eat meat sacrificed to idols and don't participate in sexual immorality. The very two things that Jesus has against these teachers of Balaam. And Paul runs across this in 1 Corinthians and he says, yeah, I know how the argument goes. There's people among you that are like, look, God is one, there is only one God. There are no other gods. And I know we think that these idols have gods behind them, but really they're just wood. So we should be able to eat that food because it's just a wooden idol. It sounds reasonable, doesn't it? I mean, there is only one God. He decides what is right and good. And so just because people worship something that is dead and not alive doesn't, doesn't mean that we need to hold to that. Right, right. Except, Paul says, you're forgetting a few things. First, not everybody understands it that way. So you're going to actually cause a weaker brother to stumble. He's going to start to actually worship that God. And so you should, you should abstain from it, not because your logic is wrong, but because you do have a weaker brother. But he goes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to say, but also, let's remember that there is a spiritual battle and that there are demons behind those gods who are seeking to deceive us. So we, we, we can't do that. And Jesus' word here to the, to the 
Pergamum church is you're, you're tolerating that kind of teaching. You're tolerating that kind of compromise. And I know it starts innocuously, but it just turns a little bit, and soon the people will hold something above me, and they will have an idol. This is the same for the Nicolaitans. We don't know much about them, but in Revelation chapter 2, verse 6, when he's talking to the Ephesians, he actually commends them in this way. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. See, what Jesus hates, what the judicial judge, the, the definer of right and wrong, hates... The church at Pergamum is saying, it's not such a big deal. It's okay. What harm can it do? They're just dead gods. You need to provide for your family. So it, it's not really compromise. Participate in the feast so that people think you're doing okay. You, you're not actually worshiping. Yeah, we, we trust Jesus. But let's, let's alleviate some of the pressure here. And the church tolerated it. The, um, the account of the Greeks taking over the city of Troy is quite popular. A 10-year siege of this one city in which um, they just could not manage to breach the walls and take over this city. And so famously, we have the Greeks actually uh, retreating from the city and leaving a gift, this horse, this wooden horse. that the Trojans in their delight of victory bring into the city and put in their city center only to discover that inside the horse is the enemy. Jesus is saying, this, this is the circumstance here. You are fantastic at guarding the walls. You are the pressure of Satan on the hill. You are standing firm at the wall, but you're tolerating the, the Trojan horse. There are enemies in the camp. Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he talks about uh, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words." Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is a warning throughout Scripture, is that there will be those who seek to deceive. And Jesus is saying, you're you're like, per, per, church, you're tolerating falsehood, idolatry, moral compromise and I have that against you Jesus is 
command then is therefore, in verse uh, 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. There's two calls of repentance here. First, those that are falsely teaching. Those that when they read Scripture and they see where they're distorting the truth of God for their own personal gain or they've willfully compromised on the Word of God and are deceiving people to follow them, he's calling for repentance. That the judge of what is right and good is saying, turn from your evil. Repent. But there's also a call to repentance of those who are tolerating the teaching. See, Paul, when he's talking to Timothy, talks about false teaching as if it's gangrenous. And if you don't cut it off, it will, it will infect everything. So he's saying, look, th those of you who know it's happening in your church or you're allowing it into your home, repent of that. You, 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 can't, you can't do that. Those voices will infiltrate your heart. That disease will affect your soul. And soon you will put something other above me and will be worshiping something else. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the word of my mouth. That God would come and war against them, those that don't repent, those that don't change, those that don't seek after holiness and righteousness, what is right and good and pure and lovely, that he would come first to them and judge them with the sword that will judge the nations. Daryl Johnson in his book on Revelation says, we learn from this passage that tolerance is not a biblical virtue. Patience is, understanding is, civility is, graciousness is, mercy is, humility is, but not tolerance. Jesus' call is that we would be holy people, that the church would seek after him and seek to obey and implement the things that he has taught throughout his word so that we could be more like him. And when we compromise, when we look to the world around us and we amalgamate things into our world or into the church that would compromise that truth, he will come against us first. It's a sobering word, but this is actually a loving endeavor. And that Christ does not come in judgment first. He gives a word of warning. He says, I see where you are being wrong, and so turn from your ways. Because I will come and judge. So turn. This is actually incredibly merciful to the church of Pergamum. 
that instead of just receiving the judgment of God, they are granted a view into what they would be judged for and are asked to turn and repent. Now, it's, 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 we need to be careful here because this is, this is not a call for us then to microanalyze everyone else's theological position and personal commitments. This is not a log-seeking exercise. Where is somebody else failing? Mm, I'm not sure you're reading that right. Maybe you should parse this Greek word differently. I don't know. Calvin said this. That's that's not what Jesus is calling us to here. Yes, there is value in discerning what God's word says together, but remember in grace, in mercy, in compassion, in humility. So it doesn't matter whether you use precepts or Simeon's trust. What matters is, is that you hold this word of God and you put it above yourself, not you above it. And that we submit ourselves together to what it teaches us so that we can be faithful to him who is judge over all. It's a call for us to be discerning on the voices that we let into our lives. Who is it that are on our podcasts? What are they teaching? Do we listen because we like it? or because it's true. Are they speaking Jesus' words? Does what they say line up with Scripture? When you go home today, will you take your Bible and make sure that I'm teaching what's right? That's Jesus' call. Don't tolerate falsehood. Don't tolerate twisting. Follow me. My words bring life. My words are true. And as much as you deviate from that, there is judgment. Man, we need to be careful about that, right? But here's Jesus' commitment. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Those, uh, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Uh, th- this, is, this, is, this is a way of saying, you, you heard me, right? Like, okay, so um, as parents, we kind of understand this. Uh, you ask your kid to do something, right? Set the table, make your bed, clean your room, whatever, do the dishes. And you go off and you do something and you come back and you find out that the thing has not been done. What do you say? Did, did you hear me? Like, did, did you hear me? And, and the, the, the implication there is not, did my voice travel across the room in such a way that your eardrums vibrated and you understood what I said? That's not what's being said. It's a rhetorical question being like, certainly you heard me. Why didn't you do what I asked? 
Right? Right. So what the Spirit has said to the churches, let us have ears to hear. And to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. Oh man, this, this is a picture of, G, of God's sustaining work to the Israelites as they wandered the desert and they needed food and God brought food every day into their lives. Then they took a jar of that and put that in the Ark of the Covenant to remind them of the provision of God. And then John, the Gospel of John, Jesus comes and he says, I, I am the bread from heaven. Where he's saying here is, look, look, it, I'm, I, this is not an easy road that I'm calling you to. Biblical faithfulness. It will take hard work, but... I promise you that you commit yourself to it, you will get more of me. You will get more of the sustaining reality of the presence of God in your life. You will have me. You will have some of that hidden manna. The bread from heaven will come upon you. And you will be given a white stone. In, 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 in ancient Times this white stone was used as a um, as a way to gain entrance. If you um, won a, an an athletic event, you know you came first. You you got a white stone as your reward. Like this this was your medal. Instead of getting the gold or silver or bronze, you got this white stone, and that guaranteed you entrance to the celebration to follow. Jesus is saying here, look, be faithful. I will provide for you and I will give you a guarantee to the entrance to the celebration that is to come. It will be hard discerning the truth and graciously calling people to it. Not outside, but inside. That will be a hard work, but I'm calling you to it, and in the end, you will celebrate together with me. Oh, I, I pray that we are a church who is so passionate about the truth that we would seek it out, we would discern it, that we would be wise about the voices that we listen to, and that Christ would be glorified in our endeavors to know him better. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are so merciful as to give us warning and not just judgment. Thank you that you repeatedly call us back to repentance. So Father, I pray that you would grant us wisdom as we listen to the voices around us, as we hear what they teach, God, would you give us ears to hear what you are saying and would you give us the courage to stand up for what is right and the grace to stand up for it in a way that brings people back to you. Jesus, would you find us faithful as we love those around us and love those who are here and hold fast to your truth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.